0: Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically.
1: And we may interrupt you, think less Terry Gross and more like what it would be like at a bar if we were allowed to do that.
2: I enjoy her because she uh, she has that very kind of sympathetic voice when she's interviewing people, you know?
0: Is that implying passive-aggressively that we don't have a sympathetic tone?
2: Uh, no comment, no further comment on that.
0: Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data and housing reporter with Cal Matters, And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Monday, October 5th, it's deja vu all over again, Liam. Rent control is on the ballot. It's like 2018, but not. Oh God, I wish it was 2018. <laughs> I know, me too. God, what a better year. In pretty much every conceivable way. This episode, we'll be talking about Prop 21, the sequel, the hotly anticipated sequel to Prop 10, the rent control initiative that lost pretty overwhelmingly in 2018. We have the perfect guest to talk about it with. We have from the Yes on
1: 21 side, Rene Moya. He's the campaign director. And then we also, from the No on
0: 21 side, have their campaign spokesman, Steve Maviglio. This will be the first of two episodes we'll be devoting to housing on the ballot. In two weeks, we'll be talking about Prop 19, the other big housing initiative that you'll be voting on. Have you gotten your ballot yet? It came on Saturday. How about you? No, not yet. Oh. I'm a little worried because I recently moved into a place that was not a residential like the post office didn't know it was a place where people lived so you're in an illegal unit is what you're saying you're like in some converted warehouse somewhere i live backstage where the animatronics are at a chuck (laughs) e cheese (laughs) and i pay 1500 a month don't come to sacramento (laughs) right to get outside there's a giant claw that picks you up and (laughs) puts you (laughs) But no, I'm, I'm concerned I haven't gotten my sample ballot or anything mm. yet. I'm not quite sure what's going on. You should take care of that. Let's move to the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is the avocado of the fortnight. And this avocado takes us to veto land population, Gavin Newsom. Matt, tell
1: us what Gavin Newsom's veto and 19th century Russia have in common.
0: So in the cabal that is the Sacramento Press Corps, we have jokingly referred to a prolonged episode in Gavin Newsom's homelessness plans called Zargate. You've made light of this on several occasions. Have you not, Liam? I enjoy this one, yes. So take us through the saga of Zargate. So I will try to do this as briefly as possible. Boom, election, 2018, Gavin on the campaign trail says, I want a point person on homelessness. I want a cabinet-level secretary on homelessness, dare I say, a homelessness czar. For those unfamiliar, czars, I know that's your favored form of government. Also a common bureaucratic term for somebody whose job it is to deal with a really, really tough issue nobody else wants to deal with, like the drug czar, nationally. So that's his campaign pledge. He gets elected. The following year, he says, hey, you know what? I got this homelessness task force that I've appointed, which we've talked about on this podcast before. I got a bunch of other people to help me out with homelessness. Eh, I don't really need a czar. Eh, I'll be okay without it.
1: I will say my idea was that the homelessness task force, after every meeting, they'd vote someone off and the person who was left would become the czar. They didn't take up my idea. No, but that was of, my idea to kind we of like keep a, a campaign promise, you know, and have
0: some fun with it. But no,
1: then listen to me. But anyway, back to the narrative here. Sure.
0: So fast forward a little while longer. Reporters are like, Yeah, but you said you would have a czar on your campaign, Gavin. And then Gavin says very emphatically, putting his index finger on a podium. I remember this. He says, You know who's the homelessness czar? I'm the homelessness czar. So we go, all right, but that <laughs> that's not what you said on the campaign trail, but okay. Fast forward a little more to this legislative session, and there were a lot of high-profile housing bills that died, which we've talked about in previous podcasts, but one which was a meaningful bill was a piece of legislation from Democrat Luz Rivas from the San Fernando Valley, which would have created a homelessness czar. And it was backed by a bunch of homelessness services organizations. And their argument was, you know, we have all of these homelessness programs spread across multiple agencies, and we'd like some type of centralized body, and particularly one person who's responsible for all these to work in concert. And the bill got through with bipartisan support in both chambers. That means it gets sent to Governor Gavin Newsom. and So now the question is, well, is he going to kind of relent on his previous position and flip, flip, flop and go back to what he said on the campaign trail and sign the bill into law. And the answer is no. The deadline for Gavin to sign all of these state housing bills and all bills is the end of September. He vetoed the bill a couple days before that deadline. And his message was, while he sincerely appreciates the intent of this bill, he does not support this particular vision of organizational restructuring at this time, and in doing so, he says that he
1: actually has a different person as a czar. He pointed out that his advisor Jason Elliot on housing and homelessness issues has been with him since the beginning. Has had a variety of titles. Now apparently,
0: has added the title of czar. To his docket, I don't think Newsom said that explicitly in the veto message.
1: No, but it was a, it was an interview he did a couple like a week or two before all this happened, where he said, "Now, in fact, there's someone else. Jason is my czar, so I guess Jason wears the crown and has the big scepter, if you will, for dealing with homelessness."
0: We are, you know, having some fun with this because Czargate was a drama no one will forget. But there was some recent polling came out that highlights how much of a political vulnerability homelessness is to Newsom. So this was a UC Berkeley poll from a trusted pollster asked people a bunch of questions about how Newsom was doing, especially on the pandemic and his overall approval rating. And for the most part, Newsom did pretty well. But it also asked, what issues do you think he's doing his best on or not doing so great on? At the very bottom, the issue that people gave Newsom the lowest marks on was homelessness. The issue that he prioritized at the beginning of this year before the pandemic hit, it goes to show you that whoever is, if it's more of a like Kremlin type approach to solving homelessness, mm-hmm. the Duma, perhaps, that, you know, hopefully they make some meaningful progress on this because it's certainly a political liability for the governor. And not just a political one, but, you know, I think a practical one in the sense that he came
1: in promising to do a lot on housing and homelessness. And as we've gone through multiple times, while there have been some notable successes at the end of the day, the extent of the promises and the extent of the results, they have not nearly matched. And you see that by continuing to rise homelessness numbers and a precarious housing affordability situation still.
0: I should also catch myself, you know, obviously we've been talking about this through an explicitly political lens, but obviously the human suffering of more than 150,000 Californians without a home should not be ignored. That's the fundamental problem that Newsom is trying to address. All right. Uh, Anything else on Zargate? Are you sad that it's over, although it might not be? No, I don't think it's over until homelessness is over. So uh, we have many more years left, I think, of Zargate. if we'd like there to be. Yes. And I think specifically, I think homelessness service advocates want to come back with something next year, perhaps in concert with what the administration might be more amenable to supporting, if not a czar. Baby czar. Um, let's move to the main topic of the podcast, and that is Proposition 21, a initiative that you'll all be voting on to expand the abilities of local governments to apply rent control to new properties in California. Where do you want to start with this, Liam? We should probably start two years ago and talk about what that initiative was and then
1: what's kind of happened since. So 2018, as many listeners will be familiar and many voters, there was an initiative on your statewide ballot called Proposition 10, which would have allowed local governments to expand rent control policies around the state. Big dollar campaign, $100 million supporters Principally, the AIDS uh, Healthcare Foundation and nonprofit in L.A. were outspent by opponents, principally very large uh, landlords in California and around the country, like three to one. Over $100 total, just to clarify. The initiative lost by around 20 points. If it was not the initiative that did the
0: worst two years ago, it was among those that did. So a very stirring loss. A shellacking, I would say. Yes. Okay, so Prop 10 loses... Governor-elect at the time, Gavin Newsom, who did not support Prop 10, says, you know what? I think there's room for compromise here. I want to get something done during my governorship That some type of deal between tenants and landlords to protect tenants from escalating rents. And then 2019 happens, and he does something. So the... Legislature ends up with a lot of ups and downs, but ultimately ends
1: up passing a what I think I and others in the press corps called a rent cap law, as opposed to rent control. Anti-rent uh, gouging is what, I, gouging. what I prefer. Yes. Yeah. So we're kind of dancing around the term because we don't want to equate the two because they are kind of pretty different things. And so what this new state law known as AB 1482 did uh, starting this year was allow for annual rent increases of 5% plus inflation. And that inflation figure will be based on what the local inflationary number would be in different metro areas around the state, right? Rent increase in San Francisco could be different, than what would be in LA. And so this was sort of put out there and done to try to address some of the, I guess, most egregious kind of horror stories you were hearing people getting their rent doubled up 50%. And so this was meant to take care of kind
0: of those really, really,
1: really egregious cases.
0: That's right. This was also probably the most high profile Newsome achievement on housing to date. I, I don't think anything really comes close to this. So that's now the law of the land. Fast forward a little bit, Michael Weinstein, head of the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, and the sponsor of Proposition 10, says, eh, this anti-rent gouging cap, maybe it might help some renters a little bit, but it's not real rent control, it doesn't go far enough, and does what? So Weinstein decides to file another initiative, basically wants to set up another
1: fight over the same issue for the November 2020 ballot, It's able to go out and get the signatures collected, and here we are. This is Prop 21.
0: That's right. And at the time he decides to go forward with the initiative, the world is a somewhat more normal place than it is now. And normal for Californians means escalating rents. And then the pandemic happens. And what happens for renter households during the pandemic. Two major trends relevant here. So it's actually also really interesting
1: to just go back to the rent cap law and the 5% plus inflation. Normally you'd be thinking like, oh, it'll actually be a 7% allowable increase or an 8% allowable increase. Well, in LA, because of the pandemic and the economic devastation that's occurred, the only allowable rent increase now is 5.7%. That goes to show how things have changed compared to what they were this time last year. And that also indicates that what is happening is you're seeing in a lot of metro areas around the state, particularly at the higher end, that rents are actually going down, not going up. And then again, a real reflection of the economic problems that we're seeing with millions out
0: of work. That's correct. Okay, let's talk about Prop 21 specifically. The core of Prop 21 is pretty similar to the core of Prop 10, which is repealing a 1995 law known as Costa Hawkins. And I actually recommend that people listen to previous versions of the pie. Po- I think we did like two or three about efforts to repeal uh, Costa-Hawkins, including Prop 10, where we really get into the nitty-gritty of this stuff. But Costa-Hawkins was a 1995 law that greatly inhibited what cities could do in terms of applying rent control. God, I, I hope we can get in the same rhythm we had in 2018 in terms of itemizing the Costa-Hawkins prohibition. So I'll, these are some of the things Costa-Hawkins prohibited cities from doing. One, you can't apply rent control to buildings built after 1995. You and then- go next. Our rhythm some... is shot. What <laughs> happened to us, Liam?
1: A lot happened uh, in 2020. Just to amend this it's a little bit, a lot of other cities that already had rent control, like LA, San Francisco, 1995, that figure is actually way earlier. Yes. So in LA, you cannot, generally speaking, have rent control on apartments that are built after October 1978. And then in San Francisco, it's sometime in 1979. And so that 1995
0: Restriction is actually much earlier in, in the bigger cities that had rent control in the state. That's right. I'll do the next one considering you added that very important addendum. You Cities, you can't apply rent control to single family home rentals or condo rentals. Yes, and thank you for
1: doing the easiest one. You're welcome for letting me (laughs) letting you do the easiest one. And the third one, it prohibits cities from implementing rent control on vacant apartments. So that means that landlords can charge what they want for an apartment after a rent control tenant moves out. And then when the new tenant moves in, that's when the rent restrictions reset. It's vacancy control. You're not allowed a city to control what the rents are for these
0: vacant apartments and tenant groups argue that's a major incentive for landlords to kick out tenants who have been in rent-controlled units for a very long time. Okay, so going back to Prop 10, which again lost in 2018, Prop 10, in a nutshell, was cities, you can do anything pretty much when it comes to rent control. We're going to just straight-up repeal Costa Hawkins And if a local government wants to put rent control on single family homes, on condos, on the apartment that just went up yesterday, the newly built luxury apartment, you can do it. It's up to you, cities. That was Prop 10 in a nutshell, that lost. So Prop 21, take us through some of the differences. As
1: you said, Prop 10 was a straight repeal, which would then give cities the ability to have done whatever they want. Prop 21 is not really a repeal. It's more like a series of changes. And those changes address the three things in Costa-Hawkins that we already had talked about. So, for instance, Prop 21, if it were to pass, would allow cities to implement rent control on apartments except for those built within the last 15 years. So that means if the initiative passes, cities could have rent control on apartments built before 2006, with newer apartments eligible to be covered every year following. And again, emphasize that cities could do what they want. They could have it exempt for 20 years or 30 years or whatever they wanted. But these are kind of the
0: now the guidelines or the guardrails that any local rent control policy would have to follow. And that was the first one. The next one, rent control on single family homes and condos would be allowed, however... There's some limits to that. So if it's a truly mom-and-pop landlord and the owner is not a corporation and they only own less than two rental properties, you cannot apply rent control to those properties.
1: And then the third is this guardrail guideline on vacant apartments. So cities could implement rent control on vacant apartments, but they'd have to allow landlords to increase rents on those units by at least 15%. So another kind of allowance to what landlords could do under this new rent control regime.
0: So this initiative now puts some guardrails on preventing cities from enacting, I would say, the most stringent forms of rank control.
1: Yeah, I think if you actually talk to the proponents, they would say, well, look, we never actually expected or wanted cities to have done these things in the first place two years ago, but cities could have done it. And uh, opponents sort of pretty relentlessly hammered on some of these issues in the campaign from two years ago. And they wanted to kind of take away that argument by saying, look, very much factually. This is not something that's allowed now.
0: And I think particularly important is the 15-year threshold. One of the main lines of attack from the No on 10 campaign was this was going to disincentivize new construction because you could apply rent control to an apartment building that even hasn't been built yet, conceivably. California needs more housing units. This would be a huge disincentive to developers. That 15-year provision is supposed to guard against that line of argument. And it's the same provision that uh, we mentioned the rent cap law
1: earlier, that also exempts that 15-year look back, that new construction look back. And so it's a similarly along the
0: lines of what now is already in state law. And multifamily developers will tell you that they need several years of decently high rents to recoup the expenses of building new apartments. So uh, Prop 10... Did not fare so well. The initial polling was not so favorable towards it too. How is Prop 21 doing? Also not great but a little better.
1: This is not as a quote unquote marquee as a measure as it was two years no. ago. And so there's been a lot less polling on this compared to what there was. But the one kind of public poll that's come out from UC Berkeley Institute of Government Studies, I did a quick story on this about a week or so ago, had just 37% in favor of Prop 21 at this point. That obviously sounds bad when you need 50% or a plus one, and it actually is not great. But there is actually some positives I think from the yes side That is better than what the situation was two years ago. One being that you're almost certainly in a presidential year going to have a better electorate, more favorable to rent control than you did in 2018. Also, they're not underwater, meaning that it was 37 percent for, 37 percent against. And so there was not more people saying no than yes. So there's still a huge amount of undecided that, you know, if they break very strongly for the yes side then that's obviously good for them and
0: adding to maybe some of the tepid positivity that backers of prop 21 may have 2020 presidential election you expect more turnout and particularly more democratic turnout and democrats skew more so towards renters than republicans do so if you're taking like a glass half full view of this polling that's the mindset you're in. I will say that a kind of conventional state initiative campaign wisdom is you want to be polling in the high 50s well before the onslaught of negative advertising goes after your initiative. Because voters, if they're undecided about something, there is an inclination just to kind of say no. From that perspective, it's not that auspicious in terms of polling for Prop 21.
1: And particularly because the opposition here, like they did two years ago, has gobs of money to throw at it. Very likely that the opposition, again, your kind of big real estate companies, Essex, Equity, that's the one owned by Sam Zell. These are the folks that are contributing the most to the no side. You know, not that the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, you know, spending $20 plus, normally that's enough to have a pretty substantial and winning ballot measure campaign. But if they are going to be outspent two to three times, that certainly hurts their ability to have their message be heard without it being clouded
0: all right so we just talked about political history and kind of the current polling around prop 10 uh god around prop 21 i'm gonna leave that in because i think a lot of voters are gonna have that make that type of mistake right. when talking about prop 21 that's right let's talk about the policy our bread and butter what what people right. tune in it, for right control good or bad I mean, we had an episode that I think literally titled that featured my dissection of a study very prominently, which was a very popular episode. So we encourage people to go back through the archives and listen to all the Prop 10 stuff because most of it is still very relevant. So we're going to divide this into most compelling policy arguments for and against Prop 21 Yeah, so Matt, you're going to be the rent control is good and I'm going to be rent control is bad. That's right. And add in any of the arguments that I miss. Let me start with the Pro 21 argument of local control. Yeah. A little curveball here. All Prop 21 does is it tells local governments who are more in touch with the plight of renters and their local housing markets than the state is that if you want to do this with these guardrails, You can do it. It's not forcing rent control upon anybody. So if the elected officials of a city decide their constituents don't want rent control, nothing happens. Argument two, yes, rent control is kind of a blunt policy instrument. If you're not gonna deploy means testing in any way, there's the possibility that higher income folks will benefit from it in the same way that lower income folks do. However, even research that is somewhat critical of rent control, will concede that it is effective at stabilizing neighborhoods, at keeping people who have lived in a place for a long time in those communities. And if you're trying to fend off the forces of gentrification and displacement, a policy tool that allows people to stay in the units in which they currently live could be fairly effective. Also, renters by their nature are typically more lower income and typically people of color. So the biggest beneficiaries of rent control in California would fit those demographic groups that I think a lot of progressives are most concerned about when it comes to the housing crisis in the state. So there you go. Those are two and a half arguments supporting it. Let me just throw in another one here. Yes, rents are declining right now, but do you really expect that to be the case two years from now, three years from now? Four years from now, I think more Californians would expect once there's a sense of normalcy in the housing market, and considering that the state hasn't been building a ton, that rents will again shoot back up after the worst of this pandemic is over. So there you go. Now let's go to the no side. Liam, why shouldn't people vote for Prop 21? Again, Liam playing the role of no on 21. Neither of us have any opinions on anything ever.
1: Go ahead. So, Matt, in this role, I am glad that you and your role brought up the idea that the state is not producing a lot of housing because economists, those who study the dismal science, generally are pretty uniformly, including liberal economists, against the idea of rent controls because they believe limits on prices landlords can charge will lead to fewer houses being produced, therefore driving up prices. And in a housing shortage that we're already in, which I think there's pretty universal agreement on. This could add a drag, further drag to housing production and then making the overall housing affordability problem worse. That's one. Another point, too, is that even if you have the kind of the carve outs that are in this initiative for new construction, there are always going to be ways that landlords who don't want to be under rent control to find ways to get out of it kind of a -a whack-a-mole, right? And I'll refer specifically to a study about how rent control has played out in San Francisco, a pretty high-profile study in this world from three Stanford economists that found that Rent control there, in fact, did reduce the supply of rental housing, not necessarily because it would slow production, but because landlords converted their rent controlled apartments to condominiums and then tore down buildings to replace them with newer construction. And that, they found, likely led to increased prices overall with wealthier residents moving in. And so, point being here that rent control, yes, yeah, sure, could help some people. But overall, we could end up with a worsening uh, affordability situation in communities that have it. And in fact, the study concluded by simultaneously bringing in, and I'm quoting from it, higher income residents and preventing the displacement of minorities... Rent control has contributed to the widening of income inequality in the city. And so that being the concern is that, you know, again, even if you are trying to find ways to address the drag on new construction that may well be there, there's always going to be ways and reasons that landlords may act to try to get out of this rent control regime, and that could have harmful impacts on the housing market and on tenants as well.
0: The new construction concern, valid concern, that's why... The 15-year provision is in there. And cities can even go farther. Oh, man. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Berkeley, when they were preparing for Prop 10 to possibly pass, introduced a possible new rent control regime should Prop 10 pass. And they put the cutoff before 15 years. It was 20, right? I'm not 100% sure, but I think that's right. And that's Berkeley, which if you had to isolate a progressive bastion of support for rent control be tough to find a, a place that would be more supportive of the concept than Berkeley. So the concerns about the disincentive to new construction could be ameliorated that way. Yeah, that was it. That's the best rebuttal. <laughs> that's the best rebuttal. Okay. <laughs> Any rebuttal to my rebuttal?
1: Yeah, well, sort of. And I'm probably going to try to
0: slide in another argument against this. How here. dare um, you? But, but just like the Trump-Biden debate- I was just going to say, and just so everyone knows, Liam's family is here, and none of them are wearing masks. And they're... <laughs> And they're all breathing on each other. But go ahead.
1: (laughs) Yes. So there's this issue of vacancy control that the initiative will allow, which is, as we said, the principle that allows cities to restrict rents on units when they become vacant. And that could really lead to a distorted situation where you have some landlords who simply because of who's living in their property for how long they are, would never be able to realize the true value of their property. And really not doing a great job of sort of picking and choosing kind of randomly which tenants win in that environment or not. And so vacancy controls, you know, really could make things more unfair for folks on
0: both the landlord and the tenant side. All right. Any other rebuttals to the rebuttals to the rebuttals? No, I think we're rebutted out. Let's talk to the actual campaigns then. <music>
1: We're here with Steve Maviglio. He is the spokesman for a No on Prop 21 campaign. Steve, thank you so much for being with us.
3: You are welcome.
1: So the last time two years ago, there was a lot of focus from your campaign on things that, to be clear, actually could have happened under Prop 10 had it passed, but proponents said wasn't likely. So you guys pushed back on the idea that, yes, there could be rent control on new construction that could stymie housing production. There could be rent control that targeted the lone single-family home rental from kind of a homeowner or a single-person investor. But now with this measure, they've objectively changed all that, and you can't do those things. Why is that not enough?
3: Well, I think the new measure was just changed for political reasons, not for policy reasons. And it essentially still remains a virtual blank check for individuals and communities, not necessarily municipal governments, to do just about anything they want within some parameters, which they defined with a few uh, lipstep-gone-a-pig improvements on this measure. We're seeing it play out right here in our capital city, where you have a Democratic mayor and an all-Democratic progressive city council fighting something that actually Activist group have put on the ballot. This is Sacramento. Sacramento, Measure C, it's called. I think we're going to see that play out all over the state in a more extreme versions because it will be applied to more buildings. Why isn't 15 years enough?
0: That was the deal that was struck with the anti rent gouging cap legislation, AB 1482, which the California Apartment Association. Agreed to. Why isn't that enough to protect new development?
3: You know, my name is on all the press releases for this campaign, so I get a lot of calls from all kinds of people, including developers of new housing. And they are saying that things just don't pencil out in 15 years, that there are too many variables. The markets for financing change dramatically, depending on what the interest rates are. And what construction costs are and how they're able to attract capital and 15 doesn't do it for them. We had the uh, major builder of redevelopment projects here in Sacramento with us at the Sacramento Bee Editorial Board, which, like other newspaper in the state, has gone no on 21. He said, it just doesn't work for me. I'll just get out of the affordable housing business and build luxury apartments. That's the way I'll go.
1: Matt already references Last time we had this conversation, two years ago, the state's rent cap law had not passed. And now there is. And as Matt said, that was supported by the Apartment Association, which is very fiercely fighting Prop 21. Do you folks think that that's it? Do you think that like anything else needs to be done to protect tenants from rising rents? Or is AB 14.2 the limit?
3: Well, I think We should definitely give a law that was just put on the books in January a chance to see if it works or if it's good policy or bad. There is a sunset provision on that law, as you know, and seems like, you know, when a legislature passes a law after a lot of fighting and compromising, that we ought to see how it works. As you know, the proponents of this initiative were not a party to any of those negotiations. They stood on the sideline and screamed and threatened us with the initiative that we do have if they didn't get absolutely everything they wanted, which seems to me to be pretty lousy public policy for people who are allegedly are for affordable housing. So I think it's worth seeing If this legislation actually works, if it's good for tenants and landlords, you got to remember all the landlords in the state have now adjusted to the new law and now they're being faced with something pretty radical in the future. So bottom line, let's see if it works.
0: How can we tell if it's working.
3: Yeah, I think there's a few statistics you want to point to. One is how many units get pulled off the market. I've seen a little evidence of this. I've heard from people doing it. I haven't seen a massive withdrawal of markets because the climate for housing in the state has changed so radically in the last few months since COVID. You know, We're seeing rents going down. What is it, 20.9% in San Francisco, the city, from a year ago. Double digits in Los Angeles and San Jose, other places about the same. It's so weird right now in the housing world to really give it a good test within a, such a short time frame. But you know, there's a sense that provision on the law, so let's play that out and see how it works.
1: And that's ten years. It will expire in ten years without further action by the legislature. Just some of the nuts and bolts of rent control here. Pretty universal agreement in the academic research, including that recent Stanford study of San Francisco, that rent control helps with neighborhood stability and that there are subsequent research that shows a lot of health and education benefits that come from such stability for low-income tenants. And so why is that bad or why should we not be doing things that lead to greater neighborhood stability?
3: You know, most of those studies are done by sociology professors. They're not done by economists. If you look at most of the economist studies, if you talk to the heads of UC Berkeley's Turner Center. Yeah,
1: but the Stanford study talked about neighborhood stability, and that was three Stanford economists.
3: Well, I mean, listen, if nobody ever moves, yeah, your neighborhood is going to be stable. And that's what we see in some places, which makes it really rough on anybody trying to move or trying to get an apartment. I mean, I lived in New York City for a while. Good luck trying to find an apartment in New York. Nobody ever moves. Good luck if your kids need an apartment that's affordable because nobody ever moves. And you've got millionaires and movie actors living in rent control apartments paying $700 a month when the market rate for that should be like five times more. So yeah, it's stable, okay. But it really affects a lot of people who are trying to find affordable housing because they simply can't. They don't exist.
0: Could you elaborate a little more about how the pandemic has changed this campaign and how different it is trying to fight this now versus 2018?
3: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, the yes side has their tagline as keeps people in their homes when in fact their initiative doesn't do that. I mean, it has zero to do with evictions. You know, we have a statewide eviction ban law that was passed by the legislature. It has nothing to do with homelessness. We've passed bonds and all kinds of legislation addressing that. Prop 21 has not a word in it other than the preamble about that. Overall, even though I think I would say that 21 is not in the spotlight as much as 10 was, largely because we have two other major behemoths battles going on, or three, between kidney dialysis, the Uber, and Prop 15. We're sort of second tier this year. But housing certainly has. I mean, everybody reads about the headlines, and I think the yes side is trying to tap into that. And so are we by saying, hey, the rents are going down. The state has acted and let's make sure that what we're doing here is not a kick in the teeth to building more affordable housing, which I think everybody can see is the way out of this.
1: I would say one of the more persuasive arguments I've heard in favor of rent control comes from uh, Manuel Pastore. He's a sociologist and an economist at USC. And he said to me, you know, multiple occasions, given some of the clear benefits in the research for some aspects of rent control, and I reference again, the neighborhood stability and that this doesn't mandate actual rent control policies, but simply allows cities to do kind of more tailor a policy to their own locality. He doesn't see why you would like completely take that idea off the table during this housing affordability crisis that we have in the state. How do you respond to that to that argument?
3: Well, I think one of the more fascinating things to me as somebody in politics is how the yes side didn't use the word rent control in either their ballot argument or the rebuttal argument, which seems to me that they're looking for other things with this initiative. And we know what they are because they tucked them in there, particularly the provision on vacancy decontrol yeah. means if somebody moves out. They can only raise their rent a certain amount. And I've talked to a lot of small landlords who, are, you know, their tenants are like family to them. They've lived there for 20 years. They're giving them a break during this thing. But, you know, when they move out, there have to be changes and improvements in that property, and they just won't be made. And they really fear what the LAO found out is the value of their property will diminish.
1: Yeah, the, the nonpartisan... Group at the state level that evaluates all the measures. Right.
3: And that's what they found. So I think that's a major concern. And you know, today we had 100 mayors come out against this thing because they're concerned that lower property values equals less revenue for them, equals more budget cuts. So during COVID, I think that's the last thing that municipal and state officials want to do is cut programs. And it's pretty clear, according to this independent source, that that's what will happen if more. Localities adopt this thing. And, you know, we all know that localities sometimes are the biggest obstruction to building affordable housing. And this is just one more tool in the toolbox to stop affordable housing. Do you
0: believe rising rents are the primary culprit for the state's homelessness issues?
3: No, I think that's, you know, a multidimensional issue. There's so many other things that play into it, whether it's mental illness or different sociological factors. You know, rents are going down now. We're still seeing homelessness increase. So I, you can't connect those dots straight across, I don't think. So there is that.
1: I want to ask a little bit about how this campaign is different than it was two, two years ago. You know, there was the public polling that's come out, which showed 37% support. So not a very high number for the yes side. But better than two years ago uh, in a couple senses, one being that, you know, you guys were not ahead like you were at this point, according to that poll two years ago. And there's almost certainly going to be a more friendly electorate for the yes side than there was two years ago, given that there's a presidential year. What do you make of the difference in how this campaign is playing out in terms of how both arguments are resonating with the public?
3: Let's first acknowledge that last time was a blowout. I mean, it was almost 20 percentage points. It was every county except one in the entire state, and you only have to win by one vote. So I think everybody was surprised by the margin last time and less surprised this time. I mean, the campaigns are pretty similar And far as our end. We are sticking to the same game plan and saying this is a tired, defeated idea. That was a bad idea two years ago and bad idea now. Looking around at some of the things that I deal with, we did not get some newspaper endorsements last time, particularly the Sacramento Bee and a couple other newspapers. They have gone against it this time. The League of Women Voters was for it last time. They are neutral this time. So if there's been any sort of atmospheric indicator, it has not been in the the favor of the Yes campaign. It's been more toward us. And all that polling showed that just about everything, there's still a big unknown factor. And you know we're going to -to hand-to-hand combat right now. The AIDS Health Foundation, Michael Weinstein, has put in 99.7% of the money on the yes side. He's put in a lot more than he is last time, approaching $30 million, which is about 10 more than last time. I mean, having lost every ballot initiative he's ever put on the ballot, I think he knows it's make or break this time, and that's why he's putting more money in it. So the campaign, I think, though, remains pretty much the same from our point of view, and I think the margin will be a little smaller than last time just because it was such a blowout last time.
0: Some of the backers, the financial backers on your side, the no on 21 side, are corporate owners of single family home rentals. Why should a corporation be allowed to own a single family home?
3: You know, I don't know, but that's not in Prop 21. So (laughs) that's a a different (laughs) question. (laughs)
0: Gotcha. Okay. So if you don't know why, then. Why should they have such an influential voice in the debate around Prop 21?
3: Well, I mean, let me take it back. There's a provision in Prop 21 that says if you own— Three or more properties, then your single-family home could be rent controlled. Right. Also, a provision in the initiative that says if you're a natural person and you have less than three homes, you're exempt, which a lot of lawyers are saying that if your home is in a state or trust like mine is, then you are subject to a single-family home. One would be subject to Prop 21 rent control. Like So if I wanted to rent a room out, I'd have to go through the rent control board if the city adapts that. But it's no surprise that a lot of the big corporate people came in and bought up a lot of single-family homes last time. We had a housing crisis. And I think this really, they only exempted two properties. There's a lot of mom and pops that own a lot more than two units. Some of these smaller buildings are six, eight units, and they're the ones that are going to be squeezed because they still have to pay their bills. And if they're only getting a minimal rent increases, this doesn't make any sense from a business perspective to hold on to that property. And guess who's going to come sweep it up? Somebody bigger. Kind of dangerous if the way this was written, because it really is going to hurt the mom and pops who also contribute a substantial amount of money to this campaign and certainly are taking up the bandwidth on my telephone line, complaining about it a lot. I can tell you. All right. Do you have anything
0: else? No, I don't think so. Steve, is there anything in our arrogance and ignorance that we neglected to ask you about Prop 21?
3: It is the same tired ideas a couple of years ago. I, I think the voters pretty much rendered their judgment. The legislature's weighed in, and here we are again because of somebody with a unlimited political slush fund from a so-called nonprofit. You know that's the tail of the tape right now.
0: How much ammunition did the rent gouging cap compromise from last year provide you in this campaign? How big a deal of it is for you to now be able to say, "Well, we did something. We have some type of curb against the most egregious rent hike."
3: I think it's a very potent weapon. It's no surprise that we talk a lot about Governor Newsom being opposed to Prop 21. And the main reason he cited is because we just did something. He also was opposed to Prop 10. But I think having been in the trenches and seen the warfare and seeing how the proponents of this measure did not contribute to coming up with a compromise, he came out even stronger this time against Prop 21. So we're using that, I think, effectively. And we also, when voters say, didn't we just vote on this, say, yeah, we did. And by the way, we also passed probably one of the most sweeping tenant protection laws in the whole country. So, yes, we're doing something. And I think voters are like ah. Well, the focus groups are said yeah okay. You're not just saying no to everything. You're actually doing something, and that's proved very valuable in, in the polling we've done and the focus groups we've done, and we're using a lot in in our messaging.
0: Does the rent gouging cap does that happen without Prop Ten and now Prop Twenty One?
3: I think so, only because, you know, there was a legislative demand to do something, too. I don't think anybody buckled under the threat of the initiative, clearly, because here we are with the initiative. And if there would have been all or nothing, some of the people that signed on to Assembly Bill 1482 would have done nothing and rolled their dice with this. But clearly that didn't happen. And to their credit, you know, the Apartment Association was right up there in there with all those negotiations, and they've been in there with the eviction talk and everything else, and they've bought into the compromises not waving the pom-poms for it, certainly, but they've certainly been at the table and made constructive suggestions to it, and it's something that most people are able to live with, both tenants and landlords alike. And then you have the outlier, which is Mr. Weinstein and his million-dollar initiatives not being part of that party. So I think that's where we are today in terms of overall legislation dealing with housing and evictions. Well, Steve, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks a lot.
1: We are here with Renee Moya. He's the campaign director for the Yes on 21 campaign. Renee, thanks so much for being with us. How's it going, everyone? Good. All right. So let's start. Two years ago, there was another Proposition 10 rent control measure ballot that did not pass. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that have changed in the interim over the past two years. And one big thing is that the state now has a law that caps large rent increases every year. And it's taken care of, in theory at least, a lot of the horror stories that you'd heard of, doubling rent increases, 50% rent increases prior to the last measure. And so why is that uh, new state law not enough to address some of the concerns that you folks had previously?
2: Well, initially, once that new state law, AB 1482, came into effect, Zillow released a study that estimated how many tenants would actually be impacted as a result of AB 1482. And that initial study found that only something like 7% of all rent increases in California Would have benefited in some way, shape, or form from the law. And so, really, the vast majority of renters who are facing unsustainable rent increases are not the folks who are receiving rent increases of 25, 50, or 100%. The vast majority of people are in the firing line for evictions and losing their homes as a result of 5, 8, or even 10% rent increases, which are all allowable under AB 1482. And so, AB 1482, while an important first step is definitely not enough to be able to stabilize rents in our communities. In fact, the Housing Now Coalition, which is both an endorser of Prop 21 and a supporter of AB 1482, recognized this in the data that they provided the California legislature. But I want to pull back a little bit here and say, in the two years since Prop 10 failed, we know that the housing crisis has not gotten any better, it's gotten worse. We know that the number of folks who are homeless on our streets increased by an additional 20,000 people in the intervening two years. And in fact, in a lot of our major markets, it's probably demonstrably got worse even further than that. We also know that housing affordability is not necessarily something that most Californians can claim is a reality for the majority of renters. And so really, the political conditions have not changed substantively. On the other hand, there is also this little thing called the COVID-19 pandemic. And the fact that this has caused at the mother of all recessions, even deeper than the 2008 recession, which means that really we are in an even worse crisis than we were even two years ago, worse than we were in 2008. And as a result of that, we know from a recent report that the recovery from this recession will probably take at least an additional two years. And so mm-hmm. if we really wanna get ahead of this crisis, we're going to need to have all of the tools at our disposal to be able to respond. And our cities and counties, unfortunately, don't have all of the tools that they need.
0: So just one point of clarification real quickly. So AB 1482, just for our listeners, it limits rent increases to 5% plus inflation. I wanted to talk about one byproduct of the pandemic, which is in certain metros in California, including big ones like San Francisco and Los Angeles, we are seeing a decline in rents. Now, it's not uniform, it's not homogeneous, but certainly in some markets, the rental market looks a lot different than it did before the pandemic hit. Why is rent control necessary then if rents are not escalating, at least as much as they used to be?
2: First off, we have to look at where those increases have been most impactful. Yes, San Francisco has recorded double-digit dips in rents, But in most parts of the state, even in Los Angeles, that dip in rental prices has been far less pronounced than in San Francisco, which has fewer than a million people living in it, right? And we have 17 million renters in the state of California, number one. Number two, though, we have to remember that even if rents fall by 5%, but people are losing their jobs entirely, or they are seeing their wages collapse because they are getting their hours cut, they're being furloughed. It doesn't matter if rent falls 5% when your income has fallen by 25%. And so really, as a result of that, the number of people who are burdened by that rent is not going down. We don't have a lot of hard statistics on this, but I think it stands to reason that, in fact, probably rent burdens are getting worse as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is something that I've seen, I should say... On the ground level, because, you know, I talk to tenants all the time. I organize tenants in my quote unquote free time, which isn't very much free time these days. But still, this is not something that is academic. We know that the pain has gotten absolutely worse as a result of COVID-19.
0: So if I'm a renter and I've lost my job and I'm behind on my rental payments and facing a future threat of evictions because of the pandemic... How would Prop 21 help me exactly if it just limits rent increases?
2: Well, the response is fairly easy. We have seen that in many jurisdictions across California, city councils and mayors have tried to adopt things like rent freezes to be able to protect renters. It isn't just only the fact that there is a large backlog of rent debt that is accumulating. There's also the danger that a lot of landlords might try to use that or to push people over the edge by increasing rents. Again, I wish that were an, an academic concern, but it is actually something that is happening right now. The problem, of course, is that in a lot of jurisdictions, in fact, all of them, the rent freezes that city councils have attempted to impose, a lot of them have been challenged by the California Apartment Association, the folks who are really leading the No on 21 campaign, they have been challenged basically saying that cities and counties should not be able to expand their rent freezes to include those buildings that are not currently under rent control or that can be brought under rent control.
1: Just to clarify, on rent freeze, you mean freezing the ability to increase rents,
2: correct? Absolutely, absolutely. So here in the city of Los Angeles, for example, the city council attempted to pass a universal rent freeze. They could not do that because of limitations at the state level. There are state laws, in particular the Costa-Hawkins Act, which prevents them from being able to do that. If Prop 21 passed, those restrictions would be lifted so that our city councils, our mayors would be able to enact more and broader rent freezes and other forms of emergency protections that they can't otherwise do. This is why in May of this year, the Los Angeles City Council passed a resolution asking the state government, including the governor himself, to lift restrictions on rent control as part of the recovery efforts against the COVID-19 recession. Unfortunately, the legislature and the governor were not responsive to that request, but the voters of California will have an opportunity to arm our local city councils with those tools to ensure, again, that they have the broader tools that they need to be able to keep people in their homes.
1: So I want to switch gears a little bit. You know, the academic research on rent control is pretty consistent as to how the policy helps incumbent renters, helps with issues like neighborhood stability, so people living in places now. But it also seems to indicate that it could hurt future renters when they're trying to enter the market. I guess what I want to ask is, do you think current renters should be prioritized over future ones? And is this not in some way similar to some of the same problems you see with Prop 13 and property taxes being protected for older or longstanding homeowners, while newer homeowners have to pay a much higher freight?
2: Well, I'd start by saying that I don't think that the connection of Prop 13 is very apt there for a number of reasons. Number one being the fact that simply put, renters in California tend to be poorer than your average homeowner, right? We are talking about a segment of the population that is more precarious financially, that is more precarious when it comes to work and worker protections. A lot of folks in the service industry, for example, that have been particularly impacted as a result of COVID-19. But I think it goes a little bit beyond that. On the one hand, the current economic landscape is such that the normal rules of what a housing market looks like, where people are going to be flocking to the cities to get apartments in San Francisco, or they're probably not going to be the same conditions that prevail once COVID-19 passes in the next couple of years, right? As a result of that, I think that concern over theoretical future renters moving into San Francisco, suddenly having those concerns be more important than those of the folks who stay or are currently living in these cities, I think is a little bit of an academic point. Number two, who are the renters that we're protecting that we're trying to keep in these cities? Again, we are talking about working class people. We are talking about Latino folks. We're talking about African-Americans whose numbers have been dwindling in the state of California for the last few decades. We need to be able to protect and ensure that our cities are not just places for the fabulously wealthy to live in and Prop 21, as well as rent control, more broadly speaking, is a tool, it's a way of being able to ensure that people of color, lower income people can stay in these cities. And I should say, by the way, Liam, that the research has also shown that stronger renter protection, stronger forms of rent control have also been very good in keeping families. One of the net effects of the weakening of rent control in the last 25 years actually has been an increase in folks, for example, in places like Santa Monica kind of wealthier or upper middle class folks who are either single or childless and the pushing out of families from our major cities. Those Mm -hmm. folks are being pushed further and further to the margins of our state. They're being pushed out to the suburbs and the exurbs and having to commute back into the city. That is something that we can do something about. We can address that. And Prop 21 is no small part in a potential solution to that.
0: Um, So I remember when I was writing about the failure of Prop 10, this initiative's predecessor from two years ago, that one of the things when I was talking with political strategists who were taking a look at the campaign was that there seemed to be a conspicuous absence of the phrase rent control itself from the Prop 10 messaging. And rent control, Mm -hmm. when you look at the polling among Californians fares pretty decently, right? Over a majority of Californians, when you ask them as an idea, do you support rent control? They'll say yes. And I'm curious, when I've looked at the Yes on 21 campaign, some of them mention rent control, but a lot of them don't. And so I'm wondering why haven't you guys been more explicit that this is a rent control initiative in your messaging?
2: Well, we have definitely been a little bit more clear about that than during Prop 10, having lived through both campaigns. I can assure you that that's definitely the case. If you go to our website in particular, there are very clear mentions of rent control as a policy option. But there's an, an element of voter education here, though. And While voters in, let's say, the city of Los Angeles and San Francisco know exactly what rent control is and are very, very attached to it, we also know that a lot of folks do not actually quite know what rent control is, right? And so it's a little bit of a political education thing that we have to go through, describing to people that what rent control does is limit rent increases. And so there's an element of that. It's sometimes difficult to to convey Without sounding too wonky, if I throw at you the sentence Prop 21 allows local communities to expand rent control to limit rent increases, I mean, we can just cut to the chase and say Prop 21 allows us to limit rent increases. And so there is an element of political education there that I think is important. But there's another element of it too, though, and we have to be very clear. There is broad-based support of rent control and of the idea of limiting rents. Our own polling has shown that, again, rent control is extremely popular, in fact, among Californians. We also know, though, that the opposition, given the fact that they already are outspending us two to one, by the end of this campaign, they will have spent at least two to three times as much as we are. They're able to spend as much money as they want, frightening people about what rent control does. They will claim that rent control will cause homeowners to lose their properties, that a black hole will open up and swallow the planet, that babies will be uh, kicked in the head. They will okay, say okay, they can okay, do yeah, whatever yes, they yes, want. Yes, and so yes. that's important to know. <laughs> I, you know? I missed the baby kicking <laughs> yeah. ad.
0: I feel yeah, like that, I would have, yeah. I would have okay. seen yeah. that one.
2: There's still time, folks. There's still time. There are 29 <laughs> days left. Okay, but I want to push in this a little bit more because you said the missing simple
1: message, if we had to say Prop 21 allows local governments to limit rent increases through rent control, uh, and you simplify it to Prop 21 you know, allows us to limit rent increases, why not just do a Prop 21 does rent control? Why not
2: run a measure that says, Californians, you want rent control? Here it is. But see, it isn't just about that, though. And this is ultimately something that we feel strongly in our bones. There has been this misconception that the opposition that a lot of folks in this space have kind of labored under for quite a long time, that the connection between rent increases and evictions and homelessness, that there is no through line between those issues. And so for us, the reason why we adopted the motto, keep families in their homes, actually goes to make that case specifically, that without doing something to arrest the increase, I should say, in rents, And therefore, to stop evictions, we're never going to address really and fundamentally the issue of homelessness in the state of California. And we know that at the top of every Californian's minds are both these issues of housing affordability and homelessness. It's not one or the other. Part of our job, again, is to really convey a brutal truth about the housing market in California, that the high cost of housing or the unaffordability of our housing is what is driving the homelessness crisis. It's a little bit of a balancing act. It's a little bit tricky, but really it is about essentially talking to all the voters of California, not just the tenants, but the homeowners, and to say, this is an issue that affects you. Rent control sounds like it's something that only affects renters, that if you are a renter, it is undeniably good for your rents to be limited. Absolutely true. But if you are a homeowner, you also are invested in the idea that the instability in our communities and the growth of homelessness is disastrous for all of us. And in fact, homeowners, given the fact that they are wealthier, they pay a higher proportion of the taxes that go towards tackling that very same homelessness. We don't think it is a narrow issue. This is fundamentally an issue about the kind of state that we want to live in. Perhaps I
1: wasn't clear in my question. My question was, why have an initiative that then requires a second step, which is a, a local government to approve a rent control ordinance or have their own rent control policy versus running an initiative that says, if this initiative passes, these are the rent control rules in the state of California. There's no like local opt-in, no local tailoring. And the context of rent control being popular in and of itself politically, why not just say We're going to do an issue that says here is rent control if you pass it.
2: Well, there are a number of issues here. Number one, I'd say that we are also learning from the experience in New York State, where the recent changes to the rent control laws happened at the state level as an opt-in to local communities. But why does that matter in a place like California? We know that Alpine County, we know that Amador County, that Butte County are probably not the same type of housing markets that Los Angeles, San Francisco, or even San Diego are. There is a recognition of the reality that this is a gigantic state with different priorities and different forms or characteristics in the housing market. I think it goes a little bit beyond that too, though, which is that ultimately or fundamentally, the ability to be able to enact rent control and enforce it is something that really at this time, only really local governments who have the ability to do so. If LA, as an example, ends up expanding rent control after Prop 21 passes, it has the infrastructure to be able to do that automatically. What is the lesson from AB 1482 on the other hand? The state imposed a statewide rent cap, which is too high. Of course, let's be very clear about that. It is a too high rent cap, but no enforcement mechanism at the state level to ensure that there are no abuses In those jurisdictions where there isn't a pre-existing infrastructure for renter protections, that is a huge issue. If you are a renter in, let's say, Fresno or Bakersfield or even in, again, a lot of more rural counties, what place do you have to go to when you are facing an illegal rent increase? And the answer is frankly and fundamentally, not many options are available to you. On the other hand, places like LA and San Francisco, which have very robust infrastructures to be able to enforce these protections, they do. It's a balancing act. It's a balancing act on the one hand between recognizing that the state has nothing like the infrastructure to be able to do that. And on the other hand, because again, these are demonstrably fundamentally different real estate markets. I
0: wanted to get your reaction to the most recent public polling around Prop 21. This is from UC Berkeley Pollster, which showed support for the measure in the 30s. There was a bevy of undecideds around it, but typically at this point in the campaign, I assume you'd want to see significantly more support. What was your reaction when you saw that Berkeley poll?
2: Well, we obviously are doing our own polling as well. And our own polling has uh, shown kind of a different picture, actually, to what we were seeing in the Jess poll. How different? Oh, markedly different. Markedly different. So Again, we we're not gonna, percentages. We're not, are... not going to go into the fundamental. Sorry, Matt, but we're not going <laughs> to talk about our own internal polling too much. I will say though that it seems that the opposition probably have a picture closer to ours as well. We recently got a hold of an email that they sent out saying that we are likely or we have a bigger and stronger chance this time around to be able to pass it, probably because they are seeing polling similar to ours. Uh, there was also, of course, the Survey USA poll that had us above by 19 points. And so, again, we feel we're in a comfortable place. It is a difficult fight. We never thought that this would be easy. But I will say that we are in a stronger position than we were during Prop 10 at this point in the campaign. And we, we're going to continue to push forward.
1: All right, Renee, anything else that you want to convey to our uh, very vast and influential audience?
2: Uh, of course. Look, you know, We can't expect to keep on making the same mistakes over and over again and expecting different results. The problem, of course, is that the No on 21 side, the No on 21 campaign, are going to continue to say that steady as she goes is enough, that we can continue doing the same thing over and over again, tweaking at the margins here and there, but ultimately not fundamentally addressing some of the issues that our state confronts. Prop 21 is an important first step. It's an important first step because it does so much to protect the people who are already there and vulnerable. That will protect the 17 million renters of California. But there is another aspect of this too. We need to send a strong signal to our elected officials in Sacramento that enough is enough, that they have not done enough to be able to confront this issue, that they have not done enough to address the issues of affordability that in particular working class communities and communities of color are confronting, that the homelessness crisis is getting worse. This needs to stop. And they- need to stop listening to the funders of the No on 21 campaign. They need to stop listening to the lobbies and the corporate interests that have made California's housing crisis as bad as it is. You cannot trust the arsonist with putting out the fire when your house is burning down. It's as simple as that. And we hope that the voters of California will agree.
0: All right. All right. Thank you so much, Renee.
2: No worries. Thanks, folks.
0: Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter the California Housing Crisis Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at M11Reports. And me, Liam Dillon. My Twitter handle is at Dylan Liam. And thanks as always to our producer and editor extraordinaire, Victor Figueroa, who is constantly editing out Liam, interrupting me and yelling at me in a way that was reminiscent of a certain event that happened earlier this week. Thanks again for listening. And we will be back in two weeks with the remainder of Housing on Your Ballot.